Hi everyone. Uh, Bible reading today is Mark chapter 2 verse 13 to chapter 3 verse 6 and you'll find it in your handouts. Once again, Jesus went out beside the lake. A large crowd came to him and he began to teach them. As he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him. And Levi got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. When the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, saw him eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said to them, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. Some people came and asked Jesus, How is it that John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting, but yours are not? Jesus answered, How can the guests of the bridegroom fast while while he is with them? They cannot, so long as they have him with them. But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, and on that day they will fast. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. Otherwise, the new piece will pull away from the old, making their tear worse. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wine will burst the skins, and both the wine and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields, and his disciples walked along. They began to pick some heads of grain. The Pharisees said to him, Look, why are they doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? He answered, Have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry and in need? In the days of Abiathar the high priest, he entered the house of God and ate the consecrated bread, which is lawful only for priests to eat. And he also gave some to his companions. Then he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord, even on the Sabbath. Another time Jesus went into the synagogue, and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, so they watched him closely to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath. Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, Stand up in front of everyone. Then Jesus asked them, Which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? But they remained silent. He looked around at them in anger and, deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts, said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was completely restored. Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. Have you ever had that crazy thought pop into your head? If I was in charge here, things would be different. If I was Prime Minister, things would be different in Australia. If I was Vice-Chancellor of UWA, we'd make some differences around here. If I was Guild President, boy, would things be different. There'd be decent food somewhere on campus. Well, let's run with that idea for the moment. Imagine you are in charge. And you're starting some sort of new community, maybe a new student club, a new town, a new country, a new nation. What would you make it like? So here's some questions. What would you include, or who would you include, who would you exclude? 
What would be the vibe? What sort of place uh, would it be? Would it be peaceful or party? Would it be productive or fun? Would it be tolerant or totalitarian? And what would you provide? Would you provide free ice cream, air conditioning, high fences to keep other people out? How would you do it? So just talk with your neighbour a little bit and let your imagination run a bit wild. If you were in charge, what would it be like? Alright, well it's good to see you chatting and hear some of the, the noise of it. Um, so what did you say, who would you include, who would you exclude? Would you throw open the, sorry, Brock? I said I would include people Yeah, that makes life comfortable, doesn't it? That won't get challenged, just relax in, in everything I already believe. Yeah, that, that sounds fairly natural to do that. Uh, what what did other people think? Did, did you want to make it more inclusive than that? Like throw open all the borders, anybody can come? No. Nah. <laughs> Why not? Let's in the turn. <laughs> Sorry, what was that, Ben? South <laughs> you don't like them, Ben. <laughs> I'm not sure I like our cricket players, actually. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, because it, it feels like if we th- just throw open the borders to anybody, you'll let the terrorists in, you'll let the crooks in. What sort of community will that create? That, that, that's one of the fears, I guess. But what about the vibe? Did you have any particular vibe you wanted? Why stop at three days? <laughs> it's a chill. That, that's us, isn't it, in Australia? We're, we're, we're chilled. At least we like to think we're chilled. Uh, I notice most people aren't, actually. It's our ideal, though. Hey, any idea, what would you provide to make it chilled besides a long weekend? Any ideas? Shorter work hours. Yeah. Still get the same pay, just work shorter. Somebody will make it work. Well, you're in charge. You've got to make it work. Yeah, okay. Well, that's a, it's an imaginative idea, isn't it? And uh, probably you'll never be in charge of much anyway. Some of you might be. I, I'm not sure. Um, but in Mark chapter 1, John, uh, Mark is introduced to Jesus. He bursts onto the stage announcing the imminent arrival of the kingdom of God, of a whole new state of affairs, of a new situation. 
He announces it with gospel, big news that God is bringing something new. And then Jesus goes around in Mark 1 acting like a king. He goes down beside the Sea of Galilee and he calls Peter and James and John and Andrew to leave their nets and come and follow him. It's it's an outrageous thing to do, but he does it and people follow him. He goes into their church equivalent, a synagogue, and he teaches. And people are struck because he teaches as somebody who's got authority. He knows what he's talking about. Either that or he's bluffing, but he speaks like he's he's an expert. He just knows. And he heals people just with a word. In fact, the crowds come with all sorts of different diseases and and infected by uh, evil spirits, and he seems to be able to deal with all of it. He's like a king. He's he's like a king planting the flag of ownership on planet Earth. And in Mark chapter 2, things move to different ideas. It's really answering the question, what is this new kingdom like? When Jesus is in charge... What sort of kingdom do you get? What sort of community does he create? Who's included? What's the vibe? What's provided? If you were here last week, we saw in the first part of Mark chapter 2 this incredible incident, this this incident that if you were there, I suspect you'd never forget. Jesus is in a house, it's crowded, that people are even sort of outside the door, they can't get in listening to Jesus. And some, some guys come carrying a friend of theirs who's paralysed. And they can't get to Jesus, so they go up on the roof of the house, they dig a hole in the roof. I presume at that point, even Jesus couldn't keep the attention of his listeners. And they let the guy down in front of Jesus. But Jesus' response is so different to what everyone anticipated. Instead of saying, I heal you, he says, son, your sins are forgiven. Now, he goes on to demonstrate that he, can, he has got the authority to forgive sins by healing the man, bringing him back to full health again. But forgiveness seems to be at the heart of what Jesus is on about. He's dispensing forgiveness to even those who aren't asking for it. So what sort of community does forgiveness create? It's a very different community to a gated community where you keep the riffraff out. It's a very different community to one where law and order is is the going concern. And we see something of that in the first incident here in verses 13 and 14. Jesus goes out beside the lake again large crowd and as he walked along he saw Levi son of Alphaeus sitting at the tax collector's booth he's a tax collector and Jesus says follow me and Levi got up and followed him now I presume you don't meet many tax collectors do you if you did what would you think imagine you're at a party and and you ask somebody what they didn't say they say well I'm a tax collector I go around I make sure people pay their GST would you feel friendly towards the person (laughs) probably not Well, in that culture, it was much, much heavier than that. That is, the tax collectors were people who'd sold out to the overlords, to Rome and Herod, uh, the king, to collect taxes for them. You can imagine what that was like, paying taxes to a foreign power to pay for the soldiers who kept you under the thumb. Yeah, that makes you popular, doesn't it? On top of that, they were corrupt because of the way that the Romans organised the tax system, it made it just almost natural that you would extort more out of the people than you had to. So tax collectors were the scum. that They were hated by everybody. The only people who liked tax collectors were fellow tax collectors. They formed their own little sort of group together, huddling when everyone else hated them. And Jesus calls one of them to follow him. And more than that... He goes and hangs out with Levi and his mates. Verse 15, Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house. 
Many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. The teachers of the law heard about it, and they asked his disciples, why does he eat with, with tax collectors and sinners? Sinners is this sort of global term for people of loose morals, of lax morals. It included prostitutes and petty thieves and drunkards and the unsavoury and despised people of that culture. Hi, this is Christian Union. Do you want to come in? Okay, that's okay. Jesus is hanging out with Levi and his mates, those sort of people. It's not just some little foray where he dispenses a little bit of aid, does some good and then goes back to live in Dalkeith. No, he goes and has dinner with them. It's a dinner party. In that culture, it was called table fellowship. To have dinner with somebody was to to extend an arm of welcome and acceptance of belonging together. These people are welcome in the new kingdom of Jesus. Based on forgiveness, not achievement, not cleanliness, not being safe, even tax collectors and sinners. There's no stratification, the people who are welcome and the people who aren't welcome. Secondly, there's the vibe. In verse 18... Jesus, uh, another sort of question comes. John's disciples and the disciples were fasting. Some people came and asked Jesus, how is it that John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting, but yours are not? He's asked this question about fasting. Because fasting is what religious people do all over the world. Islam has Ramadan. Hindus, Buddhists have their periods of fasting. It's, It's part of religion. And the Pharisees of Jesus' day, the Pharisees were the religious zealots, those who really wanted to please God, those who had a heart uh, to do all they could to keep God's law and be God's people and honour God. Well, they, they saw fasting as an essential part of doing that. So the Pharisees fasted every Monday and Thursday of each week. The law only demanded that you fast one day of the year. But they wanted to do more than the law demanded. So they fasted twice a week as a sign of their devotion. But, John's disciples, but Jesus' disciples aren't fasting. You know, if, you had lunch, if you were with them on Mondays, they'd eat their lunch and eat their dinner. Thursdays as well, and Tuesdays and Wednesdays and Fridays and Saturdays and Sundays. Just Every day they just eat. And Jesus is asked, why don't you fast? And verse 19, Jesus' answer has nothing to do with the health benefits or otherwise of fasting. Listen to what he says. He says, How can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he's with them? They cannot, so long as they have him with them. Now he uses a, an image, a metaphor, of a wedding, a wedding banquet. Now weddings in those days were in some ways different to ours. The way we do weddings today, the bride is the only person who matters. You don't really need a groom. You could put a cardboard cutout groom there and the whole thing would probably still work brilliantly. But in those days, the groom was the centre. It was all about them. And the wedding celebration, the wedding banquet, would often go for almost a week. But Jesus imagines the situation. You're at the wedding banquet. You think of a wedding reception here. You're there. The bride and the groom arrive. They, they process in. They sit at their table. You sit at, at your table. And then the food is, comes around the best food that the bride's parents can afford, and it's put in front of you. Now, at that point, you're going to push the food away and not eat. You can't do that, can you? The food is part of the celebration. 
It's part of what makes the whole thing such a joyous occasion. It contributes to it as the way you celebrate. To not eat is totally rude. And that's the picture Jesus paints. He says, you can't fast while the bridegroom's there. In the middle of the wedding reception, you can't suddenly decide, I'm not going to eat. It's just shameful to do it. No, the kingdom he's bringing is not a kingdom of fasting, of wowserism, of you can't enjoy yourself. No, while he's with them, while the bridegroom's there, it's a time for feasting and celebration. It's party time. Bring out the food and drink. It's not the time for austerity. And then he's asked about the Sabbath. In verse 23, one Sabbath. The Sabbath was the seventh day of the week. The law of God in the Old Testament said that the seventh day, the Sabbath, was a day for rest. You are not to do any work on the Sabbath. So it's a Sabbath. And Jesus was going through the grain fields. That is, he and his disciples were walking, presumably from village to village, and they walked through some of the grain, some of the fields of wheat or whatever other grain that they were growing. And as his disciples walked along, they began to pick some of the heads of grain. And the Pharisees said to him, look, why are you doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? As disciples, as they went past, they presumably they were hungry. They just broke off some of the heads of wheat and rubbed to get the husk off and blew it away and ate the grain. And the Pharisees said, you can't do that. That's work. The law said you must not work on the Sabbath. But if it says you must not work on the Sabbath, then you've got to work out what is work and what isn't work, don't you? And so the Pharisees, uh, because they were keen to keep the law of God, very keen, they worked out 39 categories of work. And then they said, listen, if we're really going to be keep God's law, we must make sure we never even go close to breaking the law. So they had this system, this way of thinking about it. They called building a fence around the law. Now, if there's a, there's a hole in the ground there, and you want to make sure people don't fall into it, what do you do? You build a fence around it so they don't even go near the edge of the hole. That stops them falling in. And so they worked out ways to prevent anybody from even going close to doing work. So one of the rules they, they came up with, one of the fences, was this one. You must not look in a mirror on the Sabbath. Can you work out why? Because if you look in a mirror and you're my age... What will you see? You'll see a grey hair. And if you see a grey hair, what will you be tempted to do? Pluck it out. Plucking's work. So don't look in a mirror on the Sabbath. Now, I appreciate their zeal, but can you imagine what the Sabbath becomes under that sort of regime? It becomes a day where you're always afraid you might step across the line, you might cross one of the fences, you might do some work. It becomes a day of being uptight, of being totally restricted in everything that you do. But Jesus seems to be playing fast and loose with all that. And so they challenge him. They say, why are your disciples doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And Jesus says, well, you're making the law a straitjacket. Not even King David, great King David, thought of the law like that. Remember once he went and he ate the bread, that's... That is unlawful for anybody but the priest to eat. And he gave it to some of his friends. They were hungry. They were in need. You've made it a straitjacket that doesn't even fit the Old Testament. And he gives a reason for that in verse 27. He said, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. 
you see what he's saying? The Sabbath is a gift from God for our good. It isn't, it's not that we were made to keep the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made as something that we could enjoy, something that would bring refreshment and fun. And so this, this whole lifestyle of being uptight, of being such a wowser about it, well, don't be so foolish. That, that's a slavery. And can I say too, it, it is a gift. The idea of having rest one day a week is a gift from God. Please don't be a slave to your work and work seven days a week. In verses, chapter 3, verses 1 to 4, we see this Sabbath issue coming up again. Jesus is in their sort of church meeting, the synagogue. There's a man there with a withered hand. And the question is, will he heal him or won't he? And Jesus is very willing and able to do good on the Sabbath. He's willing to heal the man, and he does. So in these incidents, we begin to get insight into the sort of kingdom that Jesus brings. When he's in charge, it's a kingdom that welcomes even the reject. It's a kingdom of uninhibited joy. It's a kingdom of freedom from religion's restrictions. Now, I don't know whether you find that attractive or not. I don't know whether you you hear that and you think, that's exactly the sort of kingdom I'd love to live in. But Jesus is acutely aware of a temptation for those attracted to his kingdom. The temptation is to add what's new to what you've already got, the old, to combine the best of both worlds. And so in verses 21 and 22, these two strange little parables, he, he gives us a warning. He says in verse 21, No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, otherwise the new piece will pull away from the old, making the tear worse. Now, you're too young to know about unshrunk clothes, aren't you? All your clothes you buy pre-shrunk. Although I discovered that Levi still produces a pair of jeans which are shrink to fit. That is, if you like the old-fashioned way, I grew up where you always had to go and buy your jeans just about half a size too big for you, a little bit floppy, so that when you first washed them in hot water and they shrank, they would then fit you snugly. Well, Levi still produces a pair of jeans like that. I don't know if you can get them in Australia. You can get them in America at least. And you can see from the pictures what happens. Now, before they're shrunk, they're pretty long. You've got to, got to bend them up a long way. But after they've shrunk, you only have to bend them up a short way for them to fit you. Well, in those days, everything was unshrunk till you washed it. All the material that you bought, all the fabric. And so Jesus' illustration works like this. Imagine in your shrunk pair of jeans, you get a tear that you don't want. I know there's ones you do want, but imagine you get one that you don't want and you want to patch it up. Well, what you don't do is get a piece of new cloth, unshrunk, and sew it to patch up your old shrunk pair of jeans because what will happen when you first wash them? The new bit will shrink, won't it? And as it shrinks, it will tear even more your pre-shrunk jeans. So he says, you just don't do it. Or he talks about wineskins. In verse 22, And no one pours new wine into old wineskins, otherwise the wine will burst the skins of both the wine and the, and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins. So they didn't have wine bottles or casks in those days. The wineskins were normally made out of sheep's guts, stomachs. And when you first got them out of the sheep, they were nice and fresh and supple and they had some stretch in them. And you'd pour the new wine in, you know, you'd been treading on the grapes, getting the wine, the, the grape juice out, and you put that new wine into the wineskins, and as it fermented, 
the skins had some stretch in it. They'd give. And so your wine would ferment and become really nice and tasty and you'd drink it. But what you don't do is put new wine into old wineskins because they've already stretched and now they're a bit brittle. And if you put the new wine in and it ferments, what's going to happen? The new wineskins will just burst and you lose both your wine and your wineskins. You just don't do it. It's sort of like saying you don't play Beethoven on the synthesizer. You don't play soccer in a swimming pool. You just don't do it. It doesn't work. They're incompatible. Well, that's what Jesus is saying. The old and the new are incompatible. You can't mix and match. He's not bringing simply a renovation of the old. He's bringing a replacement of the old. Now, that doesn't mean that the Old Testament was all wrong and God suddenly woke up one day and said, oh, man, I stuffed that up. But what Jesus bought was meant to replace it, even as some of it was right and good. It was temporary. But the problem with the Old Testament was human sinfulness corrupted it. It made it into religion like any other religion. It wasn't that in design, but that's us. That's what we do to it. What's the difference? Well, here's a a picture that some of you may have seen. If not, I hope you'll find it helpful. What is religion? Religion is basically what we do towards God to get God to bless us. The devotion we show, the fasting, the restrictions of all that we do in order to try and please God or the spiritual powers, however we envisage them, in order to get what we want from them. Now, that sort of religion will always stratify. We'll always say, well, there are some people who are more devoted. They're closer to God than others. It creates that sort of community, that sort of system. But the new kingdom Jesus brings is based on forgiveness. That is, it's what God does towards us, what he offers us. Not our initiative, but his generosity. And that brings a response from us of trust, of joy, of celebration. Not of wowserism and restriction, but of liberty. It's the exact opposite And that's what Jesus brings. And those two systems are incompatible. You can't mix and match them. You can't just fix up the old one and make it a little bit better and and polish it and make it shine. You've got to replace it with something new. And that's what Jesus comes to do. But you might have noticed that as Jesus brings this new kingdom, as its character becomes clear to those around Jesus, it brings opposition. It creates a reaction. It might look attractive, but at every point, some people are saying, I don't like it. So he's criticised for eating with sinners in verse 16. Because the Pharisees sort of had this buffer zone around themselves to protect them from being polluted by the riffraff, the scum of the earth. And in that was this implicit claim to superiority. And they'd invested heaps in that whole system, and so they wanted to keep the status quo. You know, like at school, like... Was your school like this? Each of you had your little group that you belonged to. And your group had a particular characteristic and it had a place in the pecking order, whether you were the, the smarties or the nerds or the, the, the sports or the, the, the cool. And you didn't mix groups, did you? You stayed in your group. It was sort of wrong to go and join one of the other groups or even talk to them sometimes. It gets that bad, doesn't it? Well, that's what the Pharisees were like. They said you couldn't cross those boundaries. And Jesus just cut straight across. He hangs out with the low life, deliberately and happily, 
and they don't like it. And then there's the fasting. What right, they say, do you have to do away with fasting? We're all doing it. Why aren't you doing it? And Jesus says, well, the kingdom of God is here. The time of waiting and praying for the kingdom and fasting is over. It's time to party. But they prefer the old age. They're comfortable with it. They're secure in it. They've got too much invested to welcome the change. And working on the Sabbath, well, here the opposition really ramps up a notch. In chapter 3, his opponents are in the synagogue spying on him, watching to see whether he'll heal the man, whether he'll do some work. They're trying to find fault. And Jesus, interestingly, brings the whole thing out in the open. He says to them, come on, stand up, so everyone can see. He confronts their attitude and he asks them a question. In verse 4, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? But they wouldn't answer They wouldn't get drawn in. They just wanted to observe and criticise. And Jesus is angry with them for their hardness of heart. And they go out plotting to kill Jesus. Do you see the irony in that? Jesus has asked them a question. Which is lawful? To do good or to do evil? And on the Sabbath they go and plot evil. To save life or to kill? And they go out and plot to kill Jesus. Their hypocrisy is palpable. They don't want things to change. They've spent years, decades, building up their position, their status, their identity, their own kingdoms. They claimed they wanted the kingdom of God, but when it comes, they don't like it. And they don't like Jesus. There's a warning for us in that. But we also need to notice the key to this kingdom. The key to this new kingdom is not the weather, it's not the political uh, shifting sand. It's the person of Jesus himself. He's at the centre of everything. What makes it new? What makes it different? Well, it's Jesus and Jesus alone. And as you think about and come to terms with what he says, some of what he says is fairly outrageous. You see in verse 17, on hearing this about their criticism of him eating with sinners. He says to them, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners. Well, the first bit sort of makes sense, doesn't it? People who are healthy, you're healthy, you don't go to your doctor, do you? Doctors are there for people who are sick. They're the ones they can help. That's what they exist for. But then Jesus applies it in his situation. He says, that's an analogy. I haven't come to call the righteous, but sinners. So who's Jesus? Well, he's not one of the sinners. He's not even one of the righteous. He's outside both categories. He's the doctor who comes to fix the the, the sinners. That's who he is. He's someone different. You start to think he's got some sort of Messiah complex, don't you? He thinks he's the one who comes to fix everybody else's problems. Well, yes, that's actually what he's saying, isn't he? I am the doctor and I've come to call sinners. That's what justifies this new situation. It's me and who I am. And then about fasting. He he, he uses this little illustration, you don't fast while the bridegroom's with them. And hopefully you ask the question, well, who's the bridegroom? And it's clear he means himself. He's the bridegroom. That is, Jesus thinks he's the life of the party. When he's there, you've got a party. If he's not there, which is what he talks about in verse 20, the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken away. On that day they'll fast. If he's not there, you fast. 
One day he will get snatched away. It's a reference to his crucifixion, his death that's going to come. He knows that's happening. It's going to happen. But while he's with them, they've got no choice but to party. Now, I know you might think you're the life of the party, but you'd never be going to say it, would you? But Jesus says it. He thinks that if he's there, you've got no option but to celebrate, to rejoice. That's outrageous, I think. And then with the Sabbath, he goes even further. You see, if Jesus finished at the end of verse 27, we'd sort of be satisfied, wouldn't we? The Sabbath wasn't made for... uh, Sorry, man wasn't made for the Sabbath, but the Sabbath for man. You think, yes, Jesus, you've hit the nail on the head. But he doesn't stop there. He goes on and says, verse 28, So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. The Son of Man, that's Jesus talking about himself again, has authority to determine what happens on the Sabbath, to change the Sabbath, to bring a new Sabbath. Now, that's a huge claim. Because who gave the law about the Sabbath? Was it just Moses? Was it the vice-chancellor of the university? No, it was God himself. God chiselled the law into tablets, sheets of stone. He dictated, he spoke it to the people of Israel. On the Sabbath, you shall not do any work. It came directly from God himself. So who's Lord of the Sabbath? He can only be God himself, the very one who gave the law about the Sabbath. Now that's outrageous. Jesus is claiming to be the Lord of the Sabbath. He's claiming to be the God and creator of the Sabbath and therefore free to change it as he wants. There are some people who say Jesus never claimed to be God. And at one level, they're right. Jesus didn't walk around handing out business cards and said, Jesus of Nazareth, God. But it's not true to say he didn't think he was God. This is another clear situation where that that must be what's behind what Jesus says. He's claiming to be the one who is Lord of the Sabbath. He's central to every incident here. He's crucial to every characteristic of the kingdom of God, this new age. So without Jesus, there's no forgiveness, there's no party, there's no welcome, there's no freedom, there's no new age. It's just wishful thinking. If I was in charge, I'd make it different. And what Jesus is saying about himself is outrageous. See, if I walk in here and said, well, I'm the doctor, I'm going to fix you. Except not your physical things. Yeah, there are doctors who can do that. But your spiritual ills. I presume you'd say, who does he think he is? If I walked in and said, okay, I'm here, time to party, you'd wonder, what have, who I thought I was? If I said I was Lord of the Sabbath, you should stone me. But Jesus says it. But notice, I mean, they're words almost of a deranged megalomaniac of, or somebody who cunningly has is, is, is got a, a, a power joke. He's a power junkie. But Jesus is one of the most sane people you'd ever come across, I think. There's nothing unstable about him. There's nothing even pretentious about him. You see, he doesn't go around claiming to be these things. They only come out as he responds to criticism. <laughs> He's not flying a flag. It's just that when people challenge him, when they oppose him, he explains why he's doing what he's doing. But the explanation is about who he is. His self-consciousness of being God the Son. He's not trying to push himself forward. He just responds in a way that only God would ever respond. So let's try and pull it together. Jesus says the kingdom he brought 
is like a party. It's like an all-inclusive banquet, a dinner party. He calls Levi the tax collector and joins in the dinner party at Levi's place with hordes of tax collectors and sinners and outcasts. He demonstrates that the sort of hierarchies we work so hard to create in his kingdom, they don't fit. Because the foundation is forgiveness. And what qualification do you need to be forgiven? Only one. You sin. You've got something that needs forgiving. The only thing that disqualifies you then from forgiveness is thinking you've got nothing that needs forgiving. See, verse 17 is very striking. I haven't come to call the righteous but sinners. People who think they're righteous, Jesus actually hasn't got any time for them. They they have no place in his kingdom. Sinners do that. If I can say that as starkly as I can, good people go to hell. Only bad people go to heaven. I know that that sounds wrong. It sounds the reverse of what you think it is, but that's actually what Jesus is saying, isn't he? I came to call sinners, not the righteous. That's actually what this new kingdom is like. And it's like a wedding celebration. It's not the the, the life of fasting and wowserism. Somebody has defined wowserism as that niggling fear that someone somewhere might be enjoying themselves. But the New Testament rings with a completely different vibe. Rejoice in the Lord. Even though you don't see Jesus now, you're filled with an inexpressible joy. I don't know whether you've noticed this. As far as I'm aware, Christianity is the only religion where people sing together. You go to a mosque, there's no singing. You go to a Buddhist temple, there might be some chanting, but there's no singing of joy. The joy of being forgiven and included in God's people. The joy of the hope of eternal life. It's only Christians who do that. And we can't help but do it because of Jesus. And wonderful leisure, no longer a life under the artificial restrictions of Old Testament law and human religious traditions. Free to do good to save lives. There was another Sabbath, about two years after this one, where Jesus spent a complete Sabbath resting in a grave. Just resting. Resting to do good. Resting to save lives. Resting to save me and you. So that we can now live lives of unrestricted goodness. On the Sabbath and every other day of the week as well. No longer needing to look over our shoulder saying, is it okay to do some good? No, just, just go for it. We've seen a snapshot of this new age, the kingdom Jesus brought. I think it's terrific. I hope what it's like resonates with some of your longings, the things that you love. Wouldn't you love to be part of a community like this? And many of us are already part of that. We've experienced it, we're enjoying it. We know what it feels like to be forgiven by Jesus, to be welcomed by him. The thrill in our hearts of knowing him as our doctor who's called us, as the bridegroom who causes our celebration. But can I say to you, if if that's not you, can you hear what Jesus is saying? He says to you, I came to call sinners. If you know you're unworthy of Jesus, of God, that's a great thing to hear, isn't it? I came to call sinners. That's what Jesus says to you. You are welcome. But note Jesus' warning. It's all or nothing. You can't have the old and the new. You can't mix them together. You can't hang on to your religiosity and self-righteousness and elitism and have Jesus. You've got to choose between them. It's one or the other. And I know which one I want to choose. Let's pray.
Lord Jesus, thank you for this amazing kingdom that you brought. Thank you for bringing it, because no one else could. Please help us to know it and appreciate it, to enter it and enjoy it. Amen.